So uh, today we were going to cover the uh, subject on technology and whether te- the, the technology that we see in our skies could be ours. And uh, I think, uh, Makai, you had um, uh, some some good theories on this. And at least you, you broached the subject with me on the email. So I'll let you take the helm on this one, sir. Sure, sure. So with the with all these new revelations from the DOD and Navy, you know, kind of and the New York Times and basically every media outlet now is vying for some sort of coverage of this topic. But as the three of us know, this is not a new topic. It's just new to uh, mainstream. Removing the giggle factor has been, I think, being problematic for those uh, involved. But we're seeing we're seeing a move toward more serious, even in my feeds on social media, I'm seeing uh, much more representation from those in, in fields that would have otherwise used to, you know, kind of dismiss the subject or not even mention it altogether. So that, that's a that's a good thing. It's good for all of us. It's good to talk about. We need to really discuss uh, what's being observed. We can't really, you know, bury our hand, heads in the sand anymore. We have to analyze this uh you know, logically without emotion and pretense of, of historical context. So I think that's what podcasts like this are doing. And I think it does a great service for the community. I'll let deep talk for a minute and then we'll get real, we'll get real deep. All right. Yeah. Um, first of all, yeah. Thanks again for having us, Jason. Um, I think it's super important that as uh, the DOD and other countries around the world, including let's say Brazil or France, and soon I believe it's gonna be India too. Uh, you know, as they start speaking legitimately and covering the UAP topic, it's very important for people to start thinking about the science that we may not fully have been taught um, or, or nor is conventionally accepted in academia, right? There's often, when it comes to things like, let's say anti-gravity, immediately you bring that up in a physics circle, you are the crackpot, right? It's really, looked down upon despite having some of the best physicists in the world in history looking at the subject like Dr. Edward Teller, Oppenheimer, you know, all these guys were create, were doing some kind of anti-gravity research. Um, so Townsend Brown. Townsend Brown is a great one. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, because this theory has been along like around for a very long time. So I, I find it funny that it's still laughed upon. Well, it was that was intentionally. uh that was an, an intentional move uh, back in the 50s. Uh, during the 50s and pre-50s, uh, it was much more liberally discussed as a scientific venture. And then at some point, someone decided, someone or a team uh, decided that, you know, maybe discussing this type of technology wasn't for the interests of the, you know, American military industrial complex or, or even the citizens in general. So I, I really think, and it's you know pointing to that there there was this effort to kind of uh, generate a giggle factor, which is arguably one of the gr- greatest sorts of campaigns uh, ever devised uh, to to really hide a topic that is important uh, and technologies that are important, or just the science in general. Yeah, and it even approached Disney to start, you know, every channel they've approached to, you know, whenever you do an interview, just try to make it, 
you know, kind of silly or they always have it at the end of the news for like the funny piece or the, the feel good piece at the end of a, of a news. And that's always been the issue with any. Yeah. I don't even think that's, that's a direct, uh, I don't even think that's directed anymore. That's more of a subconscious move in order to remain legitimate or credible in whatever field I, I'm an aerospace consultant. I don't talk about, I, Deep and I have talked about this before. I don't really talk about, you know, my beliefs in, in this sort of research, but lately I've been uh, discussing it more openly. I just did an article, uh, I don't know if you guys read it, on um, anti-gravity research and, and why uh, it was so shunned for so long despite its legitimacy and the fact tens of millions uh, of uh, R&D go into it. Uh, all over the place. <laughs> You'd be surprised who's spending money on uh, electrogravitic research. Yeah, because that would propel our, our species, you know, forward by many, many years. You think, I don't trust people to have that sort of technology now, like the way that people drive cars. Obviously, you don't want to have anti-gravity because that's, that's a nightmare waiting to happen. Uh, but if having that technology, I mean, even I hear about Space Force. Okay, wait, well, Space Force is established. I understand it's about satellites and all that, but eventually the goal is to have ships out there, to have people operating in space to be able to intercept things or operate there. They're going to need a way to get up there that's not going to cost them billions of dollars in fuel. So anti-gravity just seems like a natural progression for any government to be studying and like I said, I just find it funny that the in the physics world, like if you bring that up, like Deep was saying, you're considered a joke, which or considered a crackpot, which is ridiculous because I'm sure there's plenty of scientists that have already worked on this technology. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at the history of anti-gravity research, um, one of the most prominent and interesting stories happened in the 1950s. Um, so there was a guy named Dr. Lewis Witten. Now, Dr. Lewis Witten was approached, he was a physicist at, I believe, the University of Cincinnati, and, uh, you know, teaching uh, general relativity and astrophysics, and he was approached by the vice president of Glenn Martin. Um, now, Glenn Martin, what their uh, VP and president, was very interested in funding research into anti-gravity, and so what they did was put together a institute, a project called the research for in, the research institute for advanced studies, and what RIAS did was look at models of unifying general relativity and quantum mechanics in order to figure out if the new unified theory they could discover would be able to account for or explain new ways of engineering anti-gravitic systems. Now, here's the really profound part of all this: Glenn Martin later merged with Lockheed and became Lockheed Martin. Um, oh, no way. The, yeah. And so the RIAS, that changed its name, right? But it still exists today in, in different forms. Um, but RIAS ended up creating a partnership where one of their key laboratories was housed at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Now, anybody who's familiar with, let's say, UAP literature knows that Wright-Patterson plays a very fundamental role in many of these uh, sort of ancient UAP stories of recoveries, if you will. So it's a very interesting connection. And the most interesting part about all of this, I believe, is that Dr. Lewis Witten is the father of Dr. Ed Witten. 
And Witten is the most prominent, uh, most talented physicist in the world right now. He is regarded by almost everybody unanimously as the, one of the top physicists that we have amongst us. He's made amazing contributions to string theory, particularly. And of course, string theory was born out of the attempt of unifying gravity and general relativity, uh, sorry, quantum mechanics and general relativity. So you have this, uh, and of course, also one last thing I wanna mention was you also have Oppenheimer, um, you also have uh, um, Ed Witten, uh, I'm sorry, and Ed Teller. Um, you know, Teller was also a big guy in the field of searching for a new field of gravity and doing gravity research, trying to find ways of canceling it out. All of these super prominent men took the subject seriously. And they even, it's quite funny because even in that time, despite being such high statured physicists, they still had to face so much stigma when they said that they were interested in potentially anti-gravity. So yeah, it's a very interesting history. I think the, well, the history of it would lead us to now. And the fact is that we're, you know, talking about objects that defy gravity as we know it, you know, in it physics in the sense that, you know, we think, okay, you can't travel like that, like an object traveling at, you know, a straight line and cutting at 90 degrees, but never stopping, actually almost accelerating. Like if anything was inside, like that thing should just disintegrate. Like this, the physics of it doesn't make sense. So well, it has to actually have actually the yeah. yeah, the physics do make sense. They're not they're not traveling in a sense that we use the term. They're they're not moving in a in a lateral or linear direction. They're actually kind of slipping. They're slipping in a bubble uh, across, you know three-dimensional space. It, it appears to us as though they're traveling gotcha. in a linear sense, but but they're not. And, and that's kind of a unique feature of uh, these anti-gravitic fields. Uh, we, and, and there's so many features from these fields that we observe in, in all these instances. For example, the ionized uh, air, the, the, the telltale glow that a lot of these have in different colors. And that can just stem from the molecular makeup of the air in that specific area, how much you know, electricity is being pumped into the field and, and that emits ionized color. Uh, so you know, there's so many correlations between what we know in, in these uh, theorized anti-gravitic fields and what we're observing so that you know that's why we start to tend to believe that the technology is is certainly doable these aren't you know these aren't uh mirages <laughs> they're not flocks of birds they're not uh you know incidents where our chief observers are just kind of making stuff up right, right. i think the technology is very sound and we can get into later why uh, why we should really take this seriously. Yeah, and I, I just have one question, though. If the frequency is based off of, like, how active the craft is, so the less active, I guess, the craft, if it's just hovering, would have a different frequency than if it's traveling at a different speed, would that affect the light spectrum at all? 
In, in theory, absolutely. I mean, if you run a different current through a neon bulb, it's going to increase this, this increase or change the spectrum of whatever ionized gas is inside it. And basically, in a sense, that's what's occurring with these electrogravitic uh, fields is they're just ionizing the space around them. That's why a lot of time in the daytime uh, where people have these observations, they're not seeing these intense glow, glowing, uh, you know, orbs or anything or fields because, you know, the day, the daylight is brighter than, than whatever emitted glow there could be. And it's also could be in spectrums that we're not able to see. So right. it's ultraviolet sort of, sort of wavelength. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Um, for example, you know, you ever hear like a police car and it's sirens and it gets louder and louder then quickly drowns out. Um, yeah. And we call that the Doppler shift, right? The Doppler effect, which is an apparent change or apparent perceived change in frequency of the sound waves when really the wavelength uh, is not really changing. It's just your um, distance. Observed. Yeah, exactly. Your observed um, frequency is changing just because the distance, the source of the sound is changing. The thing that's causing ripples or waves, it starts punching up and then starts lengthening as it passes by you. Now, in cosmology, we use the same tactic to determine how far and how quickly uh, galaxies are accelerating away from us. This is called as redshifting and blue shifting, right? So right. if you have a star that's billions and billions of light years away and it's accelerating quickly from you, it's creating a uh, light that would typically be in the visible spectrum. It should be white light or yellow light because it yep. is a star. But because it's accelerating away, it's as if the apparent frequency is changing. So therefore the color changes. It either becomes blue shifted or red shifted into different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. Now, if you have something like a UAP that is clearly not subject to the typical laws of aerodynamics as we know them, that as you pointed out, Jason, can create these right turns instantaneously, um, essentially negating inertial mass or having some sort of inertial mass reduction. What that may imply is that if there is a manipulation of space-time and the distance of space-time is being altered, you should expect shifting of the ionization that Mikai was talking about, where even if you ionize, let's say your electromagnetic radiation is coming at the visible spectrum, it may be red-shifted or blue-shifted to, let's say, the X-ray uh, spectrum. So now, gotcha. now you're dealing with X-rays or gamma rays while looking at a point light source and that can be dangerous. And, you know, there's very interesting um, studies that were published by Dr. Christopher Green, who was one of the uh, CIA scientists who were contracted by the Pentagon UFO program. And one of the papers he has out, it's publicly available, looks at the health effects of people who stand too close to UAPs. And one of them appears to be radiation damage. So this may be an explanation for that. Yeah, I've I've had a few of those uh, mentioned on the podcast already. Uh, it's crazy that uh, you know somebody says, "Well, people get away from it relatively unharmed." It's true, but radiation exposure is definitely a symptom that is seen time and time again with uh, with certain people. So that's 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 very interesting. Yeah. There was a lawsuit against the DOD. I think it was yeah. ten or twenty or thirty years ago. 
And they ended up winning. And I think it's because the DOD just simply didn't want to come forward with any information whatsoever to defend themselves because a couple had been uh, had observed a, a UAP and had come into close contact and received some serious radiation uh, damage from that craft. And so they subsequently sued the government and eventually won based on the account that the DOD just didn't want to defend their case. And that's that's telling in and of itself. It, yeah, there was, yeah. it was a grandmother, the mother and the son, young son, I believe, in the car. And the mother and the grandmother got out of the car to observe what was going on. And they got exposed from that radiation from that as well. But right. interestingly, the kid was saying that, uh, as a grown-up, he was saying that it was escorted by 18 Chinooks. 18. And Chinooks, like those are massive helicopters, but they were in the background. And that's why they ended up suing the DOD, because they thought this must have been some sort of experimental thing because of uh, what it was, if if I'm remembering my story correctly. Yeah, that's, that's right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that sounds... Yeah. But, yeah, that in of itself, the fact that the Department of uh, Defense had nothing to say, like, oh, just pay them off. <laughs> it's cheaper. Right. It's cheaper yeah. than exposure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's interesting because you also have guys like, you know, basically known disinformation agents like Richard Doty, uh, who is all over the space, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. He claims, um, you know, you have to take a pinch of salt, but, you know, he claims that uh, that the UAP that they encountered was an attempt at reverse engineering recovered so-called alien craft in his words, right? Um, and he said that the DOD was highly interested in replicating the propulsion systems into this craft. So the craft itself was a recovered UAP and they had input their own nuclear-based um, propulsion system inside and that went awry and it was spilling nuclear radiation everywhere. And that's what the couple ended up suing the DOD for. It's very interesting, oh. very weird. Well, yeah. that's at least kind of like an answer to one of the mysteries. I'm not saying you, you got to take it for, you know, you got to take it for face value, yeah. but yeah, I could see that. So what, what are you thinking? Like, are, are, did we at this point master anti-gravity? Like, do you think that there's, and I'm not talking, people always mention China and I don't care about China because other countries are doing it too, but in the States primarily because the States has had a vented interest in, in this for a long time. Do you think that it's possible that we have already gained that technology and some of the crafts that we're seeing, is that humans? Is that possible? You know, the TR3B, is that really a thing? Is that something that's, you know, could be ours? Well, specifically regarding the TR3B, both Kelly Johnson and Ben Rich of Lockheed, Skunk Works, uh, the most you know notorious high-tech kind of think tank engineering group uh, known to the world, both of which alluded to propulsion technologies that were a century or more uh, away from present reality. So when you have two two people of that status uh, in that position, you know pro proclaiming such things, you have to at least think about it. Uh, you know, what, what could they gain from making, you know, public statements uh, like that if it were false? And I just don't, uh, I don't see the realism in that. And if we look further back, 
the Germans were working on, you know, anti-gravitic technology back in the 30s and 40s. I don't think they called it that then, but they were what they were doing is researching uh, old Indian texts uh, talking about Vedic bell, bells that, you know, used uh, spinning mercury. And there are accounts of numbers of subs that were found post-World War II, uh, all containing um, these specific types of liquid mercury. Uh, some say that they, you know, the mercury was to be used for switches and weapons. But I, I, I don't actually ascribe to that simply due to the amount of mercury and the secrecy involved. If, the, if it was just an industrial weapons line, uh, you don't need to transport massive amounts of mercury uh, secretly. Uh, some were found in Norway. Uh, there was a sub on a transit route to Japan with, with advanced technologies. Uh, two subs were found uh, near Argentina, um, all, all loaded with these, this liquid mercury, which later uh, was you know, kind of theorized to be um, a, not a propellant, so to speak, but more as a, a source of uh, electrogravitic field generation when, when, you know, pressurized and spun at, at ludicrous speeds, it generates this kind of torsion-like gravitic field. And that, that field, in theory, could have uh, raised their their prototype bell to Glock. I'm sure some of the listeners have heard of heard of that. It was a prototype bell that the Nazis had been working on, uh, which emitted tremendous amounts of radiation and, and wasn't, it was such a prototype phase. They didn't really know what they were doing. However, if we, you know, extrapolate into Project Paperclip, which occurred after the two decades after uh, World War II, when 1700 or so German scientists were secretly escorted back to the U.S. to work in NASA and other, uh, other branches. Uh, Warner von Braun was, was one of them and his, his team. He, he eventually worked for NASA and then was VP of Fairchild, <laughs> which uh, has been known to produce some interesting things. So I think this technology actually derived from the Germans. And there's a number of military accounts that you know, point toward that direction and, and just taking on all those German scientists and kind of secretly ushering them into projects that we'll never know about unless they, for whatever reason, declassify them. But I think they were interested in that technology. That was around the same time uh, Townsend Brown and, you know, Warner von Braun and a number of other people were working on these designs for electrogravitic research. And then all of a sudden toward the fifties, all accounts of it became a joke or just never really showed up again. And I think it was around that time that they had figured it out. And later, you know, you had Kelly Johnson and Ben Rich who basically said, we have, you know, propulsion technologies that supersede anything we could imagine. And that really points to what we're observing now, uh, wh where that technology came from, where the Indians uh, discovered it in their ancient texts. That's up for debate. That could be, you know, extraterrestrials. It could be 
ancient civilization. It could be a number of things. It could just be theorized and the Germans just built upon that system. But uh, I, I would be surprised if we didn't have crafts like this. Nice. And deep? So, um, yeah, I take a, a viewpoint um, slightly parallel to, but also orthogonal to Mackay's uh, point of view. Um, so, so specifically, um, I'm interested in the belief systems of these uh, scientists. For example, um, Werner von Braun, uh, when, uh, I love that Mackay brought him up, when he was brought over and started working for NASA, um, he said point blank to people that he and him and his team, his propulsion team, had help from peoples from other worlds. Uh, that yeah, pretty, he told Carol yeah. Ross on that too. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Yeah, oh wow, I've spoken with her. She's a very nice lady. Um, and so, uh, so, so you have this interesting belief system, Werner von Braun, um, Thompson Brown. Another one. So yep. Thompson Brown, you know, Thompson Brown's uh, daughter recently did an interview a couple of years ago. I'll try to find the link for you guys. Um, but she had basically said that her father was an absolute, you know, believer in extraterrestrial and what he referred to as a parallel dimension life, that that it was from them that they were gathering this inspiration from for their anti-gravitic uh, research. So it's interesting from just a meta standpoint that you have all these very key players in this sort of esoteric but real deep physics research, you know, believing in this other outside yeah. intelligence. Um, but when it comes to Jason, you said, do you do we think we've mastered it? When I think of mastery, uh, exactly, him kind of shaking his head. I, I think mastery, as in we know the exact fundamental physics that explains anti gravity. But frankly, when it, uh, most of the times, especially in aerospace engineering, for example, we discovered, you know, through the principles of flight, like the Wright brothers, for example, they flew long before they were solving the Navier-Stokes equation for fluid dynamics, yeah. right? So we may be able to engineer these so-called janky systems, if you will, and really improve that engineering without exactly knowing why it works. It's quite possible. Yeah, we've talked about that deep, how, you know, it's, it's totally plausible that they derived, uh, you know, an energy source that was a few decades or a handful of decades off of, you know, common uh, theory. What is more impractical uh, is the means at which it traverses uh, its general space time. Uh, you would need a, a, a a quantum computer of sufficiency that is beyond what we could do now. So, you know, the theory of building the engine, sure, but piloting the craft is what would be incredibly difficult to do. If uh, I'm just going to throw a theory out there, if it's okay. Yeah, please. What if uh, piloting the craft has nothing to do with, uh, let's say, computing, but it has to do with the operator, meaning that it's, it becomes conscious? Consciousness. Yeah, yeah. I've, heard, I've heard that hypothesis. It's certainly plausible. I mean, we have devices now. I think it was, her name was Tan Lee, who came out 20 years ago with a brain interface device. She strangely kind of fell off the map, but uh, she had a... Uh, neural device that sat on the head, you could control, you know, your computer and, and do certain things. So that's not implausible having a direct interface. But I think the mind is actually too slow 
to uh, control these crafts that are operating awesome. at relativistic speeds. Yeah. So something needs to be augmenting that sort of piloting. And that's beyond even what, you know, Deep and I could theorize. <laughs> The, the, the engine itself, the, the field itself, that, you know, that's kind of, that's doable in, in modern physics. That's not impossible. Generating that amount of power, also doable if they made some secret advancements in, in, in power distribution and, and material science. But piloting, that's the interesting thing. Remember, Deep, when we were talking about how in, in space everything is moving. There's no constant, right. you know, u- uniform space or point. How could you then tell your craft to move to another point when <laughs> you don't? You'd have to have an understanding of, you know, parsecs around you of how it's moving and being distributed and, and trajectory and, and gravity wells and all these things to take into account. Right. I just, I just find that incredible. No, I, I absolutely agree. And um, adding to the space point, you know, in uh, astrophysics, there's this idea called the three body problem. So we can solve the rotation and predict the uh, orbit of two bodies, right. As they revolve around each other. But then the three body problem is this, when you input a three body, a third body into the system, it becomes impossible to exactly predict all the different ways that that orbit can be created. So we've found workarounds in terms of approximations, but it's never perfect. So you can never, I'll give you an example, a very tangible uh, consequence of the three body problem. In our own solar system, we have, you know, nine bodies, uh, whether you count planet Pluto as a planet or not, we have nine bodies, right? Revolving around the sun. And um, every simulation we run because of the three-body problem, we can, in 1% of those simulations, the entire solar system becomes totally dismantled. You have Mercury that crashes into the sun. And in other simulations, Mercury doesn't crash into the sun. It just keeps rotating and we're stable. So this is because just changing the initial condition a little bit absolutely changes the the finite path that it'll take. These are called chaotic systems. So if you had the ability to negate gravity and traverse the galaxy, one of the things that you would have to do as you're flying this thing at, let's say, relativistic speeds is be able to supercompute literally uh, very quickly where all these bodies are going to be. And you're solving this insanely, currently impossible to solve three-body problem. Yeah. Right. Right. Because it's okay to, to think about it just flying in the air. Right. But if you're going into space, there's so much more to, you know, to calculate at that point, right? Yeah. It's, it's again, though, it's hard to wrap your head around what Deep is talking about because they're not flying through space as you think as you think of it as a plane or an object. They're slipping through space time and we observe the movement as a lateral movement in space, but that's not what's occurring. Mm-hmm. They're, they're transitioning through space-time through these bubbles, which is one of the reasons why they're not observed to have these effects of G-forces, uh, because within that bubble, the force remains constant. Um, so whether they make a right turn or turn around or do any sort of movement, it's not going to affect the internal G-force of that bubble. And more on what Deep was saying about 
the, the three-body effect, it's a lot like the probability map of an electron field. You can't really know where the electrons will be, but you have probabilities as to where they'll be. Right. And that, you know, that extends into the physical space. It's very fractal. You know, the universe is extremely fractal. There are theories that, you know, talk about the fractal universe. And in a lot of ways, I ascribe to some of those beliefs. Nice. It's way above my pay grade as far as like, that stuff just blows my mind. I'm happy, uh, smarter man than me, like you guys are actually studying it. What's that? I was going to say deep is the genius on this, this specific field. <laughs> so if, uh, if it creates a gravitational field around the craft, here's my question. Would that also like almost serve as a force field for it as well? Like if we were to fire on this, or this oh, yeah. own technology, yeah. it would protect the uh, craft? 100%. This is why it's okay. a national security threat, right? You literally cannot defend against these objects with any weapon that I know. You know, every, because what you're having is because you're changing the playing field, right? You're changing the space time matter interaction with photons. If you're using a direct energy weapon, if you're using projectiles, you're still changing the matter interaction. So it, yeah. you basically have to counter these objects. Uh, if you wanted to defend against them with your own anti-gravitic type technology. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yep. And that would be massive because you can't create something like that on a small scale. So yeah. it'd be one hell of a bomb to try to fire at them. Yeah, yeah. It would uh, It would have to be an anti-gravity field, directed yeah. field of anti-gravity. Yeah. Yeah, it would just, um, you know, that's, I, I can't imagine how many years, centuries. It, it would need is. It would need to be equal in 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 power or amplitude to the field itself or greater than in order to have an effect. Otherwise it would slip off and around the bubble. Think of trying to uh, have a, you have a droplet of oil in the, in the water and trying to get another droplet to penetrate that oil. It's just going to slip around it. Right. Uh, unless, unless it's of equal or greater than, you know, right. mass. Like uh, when your teacher would put mercury on the table uh, and then try to poke it with a pencil <laughs> and the mercury just moves around like you can never actually get it. Right. It just moves Correct. around the table. Yeah. I Correct. Gotcha. What, what is interesting is if you, you know, kind of think about that effect. Uh, th there's never been an instance that I, I know of, perhaps deep may know of that we hear of uh, objects being shot out of these fields no visible object has ever been shot out. And I think that is because of the same sort of effect on the inside that's uh, protecting, you know, this, this, uh, this interior space. Um, yes, good point. So I've never heard of a UAP projecting anything. I've heard of them deflecting bullets, but that's different. One thing, too, as I was going to say, with uh, we're talking about the control factor or the fact that they've never f uh, fired on us. I, I'm a huge, obviously, I've been I've been supporting that the abduction phenomenon, huge believer. I believe in it. And I think the fact that they can control us means that any weapons that we have is really obsolete. You know what I mean? Because if they can control the people controlling the weapons, it's yeah. not an issue, you know, Uh and that that is a factor for me that if this phenomenon is tied to that uh, you know the abduction factor 
these things have control over us, which is the ultimate. You, you can't get better than that as a weapon or anything else. I mean, you know, walk inside a room, knock everybody out. That's convenient as hell, isn't and, it? And, you know, hilariously enough, um, with advances in neuralink, cognitive sciences, computational neuroscience, we are more likely to understand how to electronically read the brain signatures of more primitive animals around us, as well as other humans, um, long before, let's say, we have a fully interstellar capable uh, craft, if you will, that can actually you know, bring us from here to Andromeda in minutes. Um, that will come sooner. So it, if we are dealing with an intelligence, even if it's human intelligence that can already create these anti-gravity crafts, uh, it wouldn't be at all surprising that they also have these advanced neural link capabilities. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we're, we're sort of heading that way ourselves anyways, not to the point of like, you know, yeah, knocking each other out, but you know, we got the internet. I'm, I'm addicted to my phone. Like I got my phone all day long in my hands and like, I need to know what's like, it would be convenient if I could just see at all times what's happening online. You know what I mean? I don't and eventually that's just going to be built in. Like, why not? Yeah. I don't think using the term, you know, addict, I, I don't like when that's referenced in, in media being addicted to your phone. Your phone has become a means of um, information gathering sensory input. Are you addicted to your hand or your eyes uh -huh. or your ears? These are just sure. uh, different oper you know, apparatus uh, that uh, kind of bring in sensory data. Uh, what you choose for your data is up to you. Some of, a lot of it's garbage, but you know, I use my phone all the time and my computer, and I uh, I'm able to gather tremendous amounts of valuable data, uh, and I consider it as a form of of input, a sensory input. So being addicted, maybe not to the device, but to junk food, junk data, which I think is a problem. Right. But most people don't know if junk data, if they have junk ideas to begin with, <laughs> well, I was going to say that. No. And, and I totally agree with you. And, but the thing is, it's uh, like you were mentioning, somebody become a sixth sense, right? Where you're, you, it's, you know, it's past your five senses. It's something else that you rely on to get information and uh, connectivity with other people. It has become almost a weird, like you mentioned, well, for me, I'm just saying it, but it feels like a sixth sense now, you know, that I think of it. I'm able to know what Kim Kardashian is wearing at any point in time. That is an amazing thing, guys. I'm just you need to you need to change your data stream, Jason. <laughs> yeah. What What are you watching? That's garbage. That's the junk stuff I was just talking about. Now, another question that I had about the bubble: um, oxygen. Right. Would you have to have your own oxygen supply if you're going to operate Pro some one of these things for a long time? Probably. Yes. You would, but here's the weird thing about relativity, right? Like. The rate at which we're breathing air right now is we don't have to care about relativistic speeds affecting how oxygen is intaken into our brain. So if you're an oxygen breathing being inside one of these things, the rate at which oxygen itself circulates through your mind is slowed down, relativistically speaking. Relativist, oh, yeah. wow. So, yep. so that would affect the way that you think as well and how you circulate and modify your body how it regulates itself there's so much that you have to factor in when you think about that 
little bubble that alien way of thinking we're not used to thinking about these things day to day thankfully we don't have to worry about it but right yeah they they have oxygen scrubbers i think if if we're talking about technology in this sense you know it's not far-fetched to have you know higher functioning oxygen scrubbers but keep in mind just like deep said this is relativistic so if we're observing a craft for 15 minutes we're thinking they're sucking up 15 minutes of oxygen yeah, but exactly. in terms of their reality inside of that that field inside of that bubble it could be mere moments it could be a minute or two just it like depends that. it depends solely on how that craft is operating right Right. And, and the oxygen would have to be internally because if they were, let's say, sucking in air from outside, then we would hear a sonic boom, but you also never hear yes. it either. So Good it's not point. like they're interacting with our atmosphere. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. The song boots, it, they create none. They create none. Uh, they, they, they wouldn't. <laughs> they're, yeah. no. they're not traversing through liquid. Air, air is a liquid. I mean, it's in a gas, but it, it follows liquid uh, physics. Yeah, fluid. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fluid. So, so, go ahead, Jason. I was thinking like the craft itself is really relevant on how heavy it is because most likely it would be made fairly light, but if it creates its own gravitational field, like, yeah, once the field, once the field is up, weight is negated. So, you know, if, if your craft is like extremely heavy, uh, you'll need an additional, like set of super capacitors to jumpstart the field. But once the field is activated, the, the weight is negligible. Uh, it really has to determine with mass, I think, uh, how dense how dense the mass would be if you were to condense the entire object right. down. Right. And you think the point where the public would be pissed off is if we have this technology to have, you know, let's say perpetual power, just something that just continues generating power continuously and yet we're all still paying for you know here in bc it's bc hydro and and, you know like we're all paying for this stuff when it could have been a free source of energy which is you know yeah yeah Yeah. what you're referring to jason is what i call the wakanda hypothesis the idea that you really just have an extremely advanced civilization group of humans with you know 250 iqs with incredible engineering that live among us and don't share their technology. That's what we would be accepting in that scenario. Yeah. It's not, you know, aliens or some combination of extraterrestrials. I use the word alien and extraterrestrial as very different. Um, extraterrestrial could mean just like from a different planet, whereas alien encompasses the idea of creatures that evolved in higher dimensional spaces than right. 4D that we evolved in. Alternative sentience. <clears throat> Alternative sentience is a great one. Well, the same as uh, we could only see certain light in the spectrum. Right. You got to think, our, our, you know, we have five senses, but that can't be the only senses that's available in the universe. No, and no, we just are not aware of it because we don't have, right. you know, uh, from an evolutionary standpoint, we never needed it. But we yeah. might be inhabiting with other living entities that we can't see because it's a scary thought right because let's say you know we've evolved our so i believe about 50 percent of our brain at any given time can be allocated towards just uh visual perception uh taking and reading electromagnetic signals now imagine and of course we hear sounds and and those are phonons right the carrier for sound these are quasi particles 
But imagine if you have a creature that evolved to sense uh, gravitons, the, the force carrier, the theoretical force carrier for gravity. Right now, if we had to build a detector based on known physics to detect gravitons, it would be the size of a galaxy. So you would need to have a very sophisticated being that can naturally sense gravitons, if there is such a thing, right, that can do that. Or, you know, you might have sentient beings that evolve to uh, sense um, dark energy or dark matter, and they use that as a way to move around the world. And their mode of being, their perception of reality, their way of thinking would be totally different than ours. Yeah. And that's that's the thing, too, because we're always trying to rationalize. Like, why would they do that? Like, <laughs> yeah. they don't think like we do. Like, why would they do this? I, pff, again, like, we try to rationalize it. Right. But the technology is the part that I'm interested in because if they are, whatever they are, wherever they're from, uh, just the technology is so far more advanced but not only that but it's just mentioned that it looks so plain right. like there's nothing spectacular like in movies we always make it look like everything's shimmering and yeah. they'll just have something beige that looks like a puck or something but it'll do something amazing like it's right. <laughs> it's the craziest thing uh but in i know that you have to leave here soon uh deep so we're just going to ask one more question that might be related to your uh field here but if you have interstellar travel if that's possible at the speed at which these things travel at is it possible for them to, to traverse like how long would that take so if you can it's really how high is up if you can alter the gravitational field around you engineer space time you know you could get from here to and you know andromeda which should take even years at light speed you know you could get there in minutes so Really, distance becomes meaningless once you can alter space-time around you in an engineered way. Right. So it's 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 almost like well, having they can hear uh, from anywhere. Is what I'm saying. UAPs. Yeah, or even from another dimension. I mean, it really would be irrelevant. But if they're from another dimension, would they still use the like, anti-gravitational energy to be able to mani manipulate that slip? At that point, we're there, talking about, yeah, something slightly more exotic. Then. If it's something interdimensional, now you're talking about Hilbert space manipulation, right? So, like, the multiverse interpretation comes from the wave function that describes and encodes the probability, as Mikhail was talking about earlier, of measuring, let's say, an electron here rather than there. What is that probability? Um, and so we describe the wave function as a ray, imagine like an arrow in a Hilbert space. So a quantum state is a ray in the Hilbert space. It's like a vector that's just in this super abstract, complex dimensional Hilbert space. So if you have something that can traverse multiverses, assuming that is real the multiverse, then you have something that can move from one point in the Hilbert space to another, and each point describes entire universes. Uh, and that technology would be far more exotic and different than just uh, anti-gravity. So it'd be a lot scarier of, a, of an intelligence than if it just came from somewhere else Much in the more. galaxy. That's, uh, yeah, that's like, that goes from near impossible defend to, I would say, completely impossible. At that point, you know, we just have to hope that our interests are aligned with whatever well, it is. And if both possibilities are true, like if you could have, you know, species from other planets coming here and from other dimensions 
Man, the rabbit hole just got so much more infinite at this point, like of, of what reality really is, isn't it? Like that's that's nice. Right. I tend to agree with something that Mikhail talked about earlier, which is I think that these UAPs that we're observing, it's a mix of everything. You know, some of it is just government projects. Uh, others, though, can't be explained by human technology, period. So, um, yeah, we got you at least for a few more minutes here. I thought I would pick. Yeah, as long as you want. I slated a nice chunk of time to to discuss Good. this topic. So, so is there, um, so we talked about the technology that could be ours in, in the history of it, of course. Uh, you mentioned that you had gone through quite a bit of research, though, as of late. Yeah, I uh, I spend a great deal of time uh, researching the the field uh, specifically of anti gravitics. Um, you know, it crosses over with a lot of uh, the phenomenon or aliens or extraterrestrials. I try not to theorize or hypothesize uh, too much on on that stuff, as I can't kind of point to any proof or evidence. Uh, that's not to say I, I don't believe uh, that we haven't been visited or that there are uh, extraterrestrials. I just uh, I have difficulty talking on it specifically since, yeah. you know, I, I don't have any accounts personal. <clears throat> and There's no science, despite, you know, people saying that there's evidence that uh, so I stick to I stick to what I know. That's uh, human history modern history, military industrial complex, aerospace engineering, uh, physics, and all those lead me to believe that we are indeed um, in, in, uh, in possession of craft that operate uh, as we've observed, you know, the, these electrogravitic fields that have been theorized for the last half century or more. Uh, all of the obs observations that pilots and individuals and officials have seen would fall under the technological kind of category or, or features of that type of propulsion. And so that leads me to believe that there's significant credibility <clears throat> to a, a lot of these witness testimonies uh, of the technology. I've spoken with people. Uh, I, I, you know, as an aerospace consultant, I get to talk to uh, very interesting engineers and physicists and, and business people who have, you know, either come across or heard stories or uh, have their own sets of beliefs on these types of technologies. And at, you know, I really do believe that uh, they exist. The we are in possession of crafts like this. Um, where where the technology derived, I can't say honestly. I I have my own kind of speculation, but you know, it, it wouldn't do any justice kind of sharing my own speculation about that. What I can say is that you know the Germans were involved in researching uh, electrogravitic. Uh, fields. Those researchers were then later ported to the U.S. military industrial complex through Operation Paperclip. There's been several military officials over the years, uh, Defense Secretary Forsall, uh, Admiral Byrd, William Tompkins, 
uh, Eisenhower discussed the military industrial complex. Uh, and the list goes on and on about people of high rank in the military referencing uh, technologies that were beyond what we currently know. And based on their testimonies, their public statements, um, and, and just the basic physics uh, of what is capable. I mean, we may not have anything in the public realm, but that does not mean that we're incapable of producing uh, massive amounts of energy to generate fields like this. It, it, to think that that no one has tried this is right. ludicrous. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. Pe- yeah, it's just crazy. Yeah. And, you know, even I think about uh, the Philadelphia experiment, uh, you know, like if, yeah, if that wasn't, absolutely. you know, at least a first attempt to try to do something, but on a, you know, using nuclear energy as opposed to whatever alternative they figured out. But yeah, it would be stupid right. for us not to have attempted to defy gravity. That's the easiest way to to fly is to defy everything, right? And then you can actually... Right, and when you... Yeah, I was going to yeah. say, uh, USO is the same thing. Like now you don't... It's one craft for everything that you need. It could go underwater. It could go in space. And right. Yeah, it's yeah. just... It would yeah. be asinine for us not to attempt to create a craft like that. Like we have to get... Yeah. Right. And the government, the, the, the military... And the military industrial complex I use uh, as a term because it's not just the military. It's a lot of these uh, defense aerospace companies that have their own sort of black projects. Uh, so they're, they're tied directly together. So when I reference the military industrial complex, I'm really talking about those programs that uh, are joint ventures between um, very, very black budget military programs and corporate entities. So to think that uh, there was research done in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s that all validated at least to an extent of electrogravitic fields and function, that that research just stopped. I just find that ludicrous that people would actually believe that um, I believe it went deeper underground and uh, probably was classified so much and compartmentalized that most people who are working within these programs don't entirely know what they're working on besides a select few. Uh, that's why, you know, you have these defense secretaries, presidents, uh, generals who all try to acquire information on the subject. But since they're not, they're temporary seats, those are temporary positions. So these entrenched, entrenched you know, black, black programs, uh, they're not going to disclose information like that to somebody who's only going to be around for four, 10, you know, 15 years, and you don't really know what they'll do with that yeah. information. So you just keep it in this, this closed loop, this closed fees, feedback loop. And what's happened in my hypothesis is that these these programs have kind of just gone off into their own direction at the behest of any specific military or company and they get their funding through all sorts of various means uh, they have no accountability they answer to no one except themselves and what they're doing we can only guess at you know, it, how could we ever figure out what they were doing if it's so classified? 
that even the president or you know defense secretary or generals can't get access but see, to you, you bring you bring up <laughs> an interesting point at what point does the military or the defense department say whoa 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 because I don't care. Like they don't answer to anybody. It's not like they're above the defense department, right. or even though they act like it. So at what point do they start saying we need to find the trail here? Like who's, you know, it's, sure, sure. Who, yeah, who's in you charge? think at one yeah. point they would pull so, pull that cord and start asking questions in order to do in order to do that. Uh, I think there's a lot of officials who would like to do that, but in order to do that, they would have to. Uh, rebuild the entire classification system of uh, the military and CIA, DIA, DOD. Uh, everything would have to, you know, change. The, the whole way we classify information and technologies would have to change because as it stands now, uh, if you don't have a need to know, doesn't matter your rank or position, you will never have access to who's running those programs, where that funding is coming from. No, no judicial branch, no executive branch, no Senate. No, nobody can access that right. based on current classification. And there, has, there have been officials who have come forward, military and DOD officials who've come forward in the last few years saying we need to really address the way we classify information. And I think that comes, uh, I think that comes from this sort of locked out syndrome where <laughs> the military is locked out of some very key uh, technologies and information that could really help uh, the broader vision of the country and the world. But these, you know, and, you have to consider, Jason, the people in these black budget programs. This this is probably beyond black budget. Black budget is just a term to describe programs that don't have to share uh, how they're funded and what they're doing with the funding. So the people in these programs, even if they wanted to come forward, based on the current system of classification, they could not do so. If they do so, they face like, serious uh, criminal right. penalties uh it, they lose their career uh that would be the minimum um so who's going to volunteer to spend their you know rest of their life in some secret military prison uh to release this information not to mention that the people involved can you imagine how interesting how fascinating this technology must be and would you really want to give it all up and your access to that sort of technology to just let government officials that you really didn't care about know about what you were doing? I, I don't think so. And I think that this sort of uh, cycle is still being perpetuated, but I, it, people are starting to knock on the right doors. Uh, eventually change will have to happen, but it, to, to change the way we classify uh, information and technology is a huge, huge, huge endeavor that would face a lot of uh, a lot of resistance in, in the military industrial complex. And that's a, a difficult thing to even yeah. begin. So we'll, 
they're, they're, but yeah. even they they're frustrated by their own process like everything's just frustrating right, right? yes if if it's not classified right. then you got to get requests and it's got to go through 17 people like it's it's right. it choked on its own processes unfortunately and because of that it's a great way to hide things within the system and it works brilliantly it has worked right. brilliantly but hopefully with this whole um you know, Senate being debriefed and, and then continue to look into this issue that might change how classifications are done. Hopefully you would know this more than I do. Yeah, no. I, well, it'll change the public's opinion and, and belief on the situation. Uh, it'll also change a lot of the Senate's position on the situation. However, they no senator no intelligence committee official they still can't access this information just based on the on what we've created we basically created a machine that blocked us out the highest uh, the highest people order, out yeah right the highest elected yes. officials yes. out yeah right. that's messed up right it is messed up, and I don't think it was ever intended to, for that to happen, but that, that was the natural progression of things. So now, you know, you have these very secret programs that, you know, companies like Lockheed and, you know, Raytheon and even, even different companies like Samsung and Toyota – they probably all have spin-off programs that they aren't even aware of that, you know, derived decades ago, uh, spun off, got funding from these other black programs, and then just kind of became their own little entities uh, accountable to no one. Um, and, and they just continue to exist like a parasite where they siphon off resources and don't you know, answer to anyone. It, it's a very toxic uh, way to handle information. Um, but as I see it, I, I've puzzled countless hours, Jason, hundreds, if not thousands of hours as to how this could be broken down. And the only way it would be if the entire uh, hierarchical kind of team that are operating in these programs decided all at once to come forward, which to me seems as unlikely as any other sort of uh, crazy hypothesis. Right. What do you think? And what do you think um, like the geo uh, political implications are going to be, even if they, let's say they don't full out, you know, reveal, look that we think they're uh, extraterrestrials or aliens or, interdimensionals but just the fact that saying okay we have crafts from unknown origins and as far as we know they're not from here we're just investigating what do you think that's going to do strategically on a geopolitical level is that going to mess up things it will in my opinion it will not affect current um industrial markets uh, uh market exchanges that's the stock market or people's opinions in general. People still need to pay bills. What it will affect are research and development budgets in individual nation states. Uh, what they'll do is they'll start to try to back engineer these observed crafts based on observations alone. So, you know, we have radar observations, visual observations, 
of how these crafts operate and what they'll try to do if they haven't already is try to reverse engineer based solely off observations. You know, a lot of what we've spoken about today, you know, electrogravitic fields, they'll probably look at old research and then try to branch off from there. Because uh, if, if they are indeed flying around, which they are, uh, that's a known fact. Uh, so with a known fact, you can then begin to start breaking down uh, in, a, in a scientific and technological sense how these crafts are operating. And what's going to happen is governments will start investing quite a bit into uh, figuring out how these things are being operated. Meanwhile, the common person like you, me, and everyone else will continue working our jobs, paying our bills, not really being worried about, you know, we'll think it's cool for five minutes that they found UFO crafts, but in the back of our minds, we'll still quietly, you know, wonder if that's true or if it's all just hogwash um, and just keep continue on. And, and that's, you know, again, that goes back to this giggle factor kind of psyop that was generated in the 50s to kind of squelch public's interest in this field. Uh, and, and to continue on what you were saying before um, about the, the technology, like what if they release the, you know, the anti-gravitic field technology or the means of which it's powered or the material science involved, that's quite dangerous. There's a lot of crazy people out there just in this country alone whom I wouldn't want to have access to power sources capable of producing fields of this magnitude. And that's excluding uh, countries or people who have malice for, you know, America or humanity right. in general. So, you know, do we really want this technology to be let loose or do we just want validation? Uh, if it's validation, uh, yeah, we may get that. Uh, but will we ever get the technology? Maybe in yeah. a long time. Uh, War yeah. Warner Von Braun told his predecessor, Carol Rosen, who Deep said he had spoken with, uh, she was his, um, I think she was his advisor or uh, her spokesperson from uh, when they worked together at Fair, Fairchild. And, and according to her, and she made this public statement a long time ago, that uh, Warner Von Braun had, had knowledge of this uh, century-long plan to kind of weaponized space and, and had really strategically laid out what was going to happen. And a lot of those things have come to fruition. And he said toward the end of the plan, there would be um, this instance where we were facing a threat from extraterrestrial origins, and that would help ignite uh, a militariz militarization of space. And we're starting to see that with programs like Space Force, who are uh, quickly absorbing all the other branch uh, branches of the military space programs, and in order to you know weaponize space, we're so afraid of China and space. But at the same time, our military budget is multiple times more than that of China. So either we're really bad at how we spend our money, or we are just you know creating a false narrative to continue 
spending ludicrous amounts uh, to get into space and recognize right. it. Because it just seems like it's been so, I mean, we always send satellites, but the focus has always been on uh, Elon Musk for a long time now because he's the one doing all this space stuff. And it seems so quiet on the government side. And obviously it's not. It, they must be very, very active. It's just, of course, always cloaked into secrecy and all that jazz. But it, it's, yeah. you know, the, what I liked about their video, and it's probably me looking and reading into this, but they had an ad and they were saying about joining Space Force. It was a recruitment video. And it said, you know, our uh, Space Force is uh, continuously being uh, contested. Yeah by or is continuously being contested but it doesn't say by who and i thought that was quite interesting because america you can't just fly over america and you know uh get away with it there's sensors i mean the best technology in the world for crying out loud so who's contesting right. the airspace and that's what i no no, no one no, realistically that you know n no one is really close to our capabilities I and mean, we they like to say that china and russia are close you know on our heels or even that you know it's laughable <clears throat> that the military or or administration of the times will will use north korea as a potential threat and i i use this argument for people all the time well they have nuclear weapons well let me explain to you some of the capabilities and technologies that we have uh, to shut down any sort of nuclear missile launched toward us. We have so many subs, uh, we have so many ships, satellites that can intercept ballistic, even hyper, you know, continental ballistic missiles over the Pacific. Probably by the time it got, you know, <laughs> within a mile from their shore, we could probably detonate it. So this, this narrative that we should be afraid of North Korea or anything of that nature is, yeah. is silly. It's really, it's a form of unfortunate propaganda to help generate like this fear and further spending of the military. Cause we're, you know, we're always, just at the cusp of being taken over in a technological sense or militaristic sense of another country. But the reality is we're so far advanced, yeah. it's stupefying. Uh, it, it really is. If you look at any chart of, of government funding for militaries, ours is so far inflated. It, it's like several countries combined can't even touch what we spend. So again, it comes back to, are we that inept that we're spending so poorly and we're mismanaged so poorly that countries with a, a tenth of the budget are yeah. creeping up on us? Or is it more likely that it's kind of propaganda to continue this spending curve, which I believe the latter to be true, um, just based on my knowledge of, of technology and <laughs> That's that's sort yeah, of and the money leaks. There's so much money in the states, but the money leaks. Uh, you know, the Senate. You know, even uh, mentioned several times. It's just every year they can't find where the money's being leaked to, and uh, I think that's quite. <laughs> well, a lot a lot of it goes to those secret. Uh, yeah, I, but that's that's what I mean. Mm -hmm. As as you know, they, they there should be uh, somebody to answer for that, 
the part that there's nobody to answer for, that they answer to no one, or that you can't find anybody. Like, you would probably go digging and say, okay, who's spending? And you could not find it. Like, it's just, it's so well hidden. The, no. the system that they created is, in of itself, <laughs> is is great because you could hide things in there, uh, you know, like with their whole classification system. Yeah. It's brilliant. It's really well made. Yep. I'm, ru- I'm running out of time here. It says two minutes and 21 seconds until yeah. the recording's done. Uh, are, are you working on any new articles or anything like that? Where, where could the, the listeners go and find your work? Well, uh, most of my stuff is on LinkedIn. Uh, I have a very large network on uh, LinkedIn of professionals, executives, uh, military officials, and a lot of my articles are on there, at least linked to there. Um, You can see some of the companies I consult for, uh, some of which aren't listed. Uh, What else can you find on there? You can find links to a lot of my uh, thoughts and posts. Uh, I, I've recently got off Instagram and Twitter, um, mostly because I found a lot of my feeds to be garbage and I didn't particularly enjoy being tracked as much as I was. So I, I've really utilized LinkedIn a lot, uh, professionally and now, you know, socially, that's how you and I kind of met up and deep and I had originally connected through LinkedIn, so if you're interested in any of my writings, you can uh, go to LinkedIn or just Google my name. I appreciate you guys coming on as well. I really awesome. do. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.